Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that plays with cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including Hyundai's Ionic 6 electric vehicle will have good range performance, an app to help the vision impaired catch buses, Audi to enter Formula One, and Australia's Formula One driver Daniel Ricciardo weighs his options. And into feature stories, with the sale of the contents of a major toy museum going ahead, which includes some car, boat and train memorabilia, we look at how toy cars were part of the 60s image of the cars we love. And we road test the Mazda CX-8, looking particularly closely at their alternative to a touch screen. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. So let's get this program going. First, the news. Hyundai has announced that its not-yet-released Ionic 6 large electric sedan has been rated to achieve a 614km range per charge, as measured by the current most credible rating protocol, the Worldwide Harmonised Light Vehicle Test Procedure, WLTP. Hyundai has achieved this with advanced technology, but also with a very aerodynamic shape. They are calling the Ionic 6 their electrified streamliner. The vehicle also has the potential for very fast charging, as it can use an 800-volt ultra-fast charger, which will take the battery from 10 to 80% in just 18 minutes, and the vehicle also supports 400-volt charging without the need for additional components or adapters. These figures are for the two-wheel drive version with the long-range 77.4 kilowatt-hour battery. You will be able to get a two-wheel drive model with a smaller 53 kilowatt-hour battery, which, it is assumed, will be cheaper. But this lowers the rated range to 429 kilometres, which represents a 30% or 185km reduction. But this is still very credible, and still better than quite a few current models from other brands. The long-range battery model has two separate options that reduce the distance you can get from one charge. Upgrading to all-wheel drive will reduce the rated distance per full charge by around 30km, while upgrading from 18-inch to 20-inch rims has a more significant impact, reducing the range by at least 64 kilometres. Car manufacturers will typically, first and foremostly, quote the best figures and the fastest charging rates, but if you take up some of the options or the most powerful charges are not available, then this can change your situation significantly. This does not diminish the potential sustainability benefits of electric vehicles, but it does mean that buyers must be aware and should incorporate this information. But this does mean that buyers must be aware and should incorporate this information into the way they manage the charging of their vehicles. New vehicle buyers have been suffering from delayed deliveries now for some time. This has been put down to a limitation in the availability of semiconductors for car manufacturers to build their modern complex machinery as well as COVID impacts. Another aspect has been the available capacity and increasing costs of shipping. Now that the initial COVID restrictions have been eased, we are in a catch-up situation and there's pressure on the available shipping capacity. 
The Hyundai Motor Group has had a long-time strategy of maintaining manufacturing capabilities within their organisation. Typically, the conglomerate has its own steel-making facilities, for example, but this also extends to their transport needs. They currently own 153 car-carrying ships, which helps them adapt when the circumstances change. There's another area where car companies have used the low cost of shipping to establish unexpected manufacturing systems. Various components are made in a variety of countries and then assembled to the final product, perhaps in a different location again. This is true of a wide range of commodities. Some timber that is being grown in New Zealand is transported to China, processed there and then sent out to markets such as Australia. And there are reports that if you buy some Italian tomato paste products in Australia, it may well have been grown in China, shipped to Italy, packaged there and then delivered to us. Whatever the circumstances, increased shipping costs will potentially add to the price of cars and trucks. We have already seen a number of companies in Australia having to raise the retail price of their vehicles. An Adelaide software programmer who is legally blind has developed a system to help the visually impaired know when their particular bus is approaching their stop and also informs the driver about the waiting passenger. Cassie Harms has called her app See Me. As reported by the ABC, currently she has to stand at the bus stop with her cane, wearing a high-vis vest and holding out a sign with the bus number that she wants to catch and then relying on the driver to see that sign. Now with this app, rather than waiting anxiously on the curb hoping to hail the right bus, people who are vision impaired could alert the driver via their mobile phone. And when they are on board, the app will also alert the user when they are approaching their destination stop. Miss Harms works at Adelaide's Tonsley Innovation Precinct, and was recently named as one of the three recipients of this year's International Holman Prize. The award is bestowed by the San Francisco-based Lighthouse Advocacy Organisation for the Vision Impaired and comes with a $25,000 grant to fund projects such as See Me. Another well-known brand will be chancing its hand in the expensive world of Formula One. Audi, one of the prestigious brands in the Volkswagen German Automotive Manufacturer Group, has announced that they will be joining the F1 in 2026. They are timing this with the new Formula One rules and regulations about sustainability that are set to take effect in 2026. Audi has had a long history of involvement in motorsports, but this will be their debut into the Formula One. With their passenger vehicles, Audi has said that they have decided to become a fully electric car manufacturer. While F1 will not be going fully electric in 2026, the new rules will now reflect the direction that they are taking as a company. Audi wants to make motorsport a more sustainable and environmentally friendly sport by encouraging the use of sustainably fueled hybrid engines. Formula One has had some criticism as a guzzling sport depending on fossil fuels, Although the amount of fuel used is not high and far more fuel and pollution is produced air freighting the cars from circuit to circuit. While still on the Formula One, Daniel Ricciardo is well known by many Australians, especially motoring enthusiasts. He has had a troubled run since moving to the McLaren team and was paid up to $24 million to be released one year early from his contract. He is being replaced by another Australian driver, Oscar Piastri, 
who is a champion of Formula 2. With only one seat open at Williams and one seat open at Haas, Ricardo is limited in his options. If he wants to continue racing in the Formula 1, he may have to settle for less of a competitive team. Although, the latest rumour is that he may be a test driver for Mercedes. Getting a drive in Formula 1 is not always down to talent alone. How much money, including sponsorships, that you can bring to the team can be very critical. Lance Stroll's father, a Canadian billionaire, brought him a Formula One team, and Lance, who had some success in the lower grade competition, is now one of their drivers. It has been reported that Ricardo gives good feedback to his engineers, and while a move to being a test driver is a demotion, it is with a team that has strong financial resources and needs to improve its game if it's to get back to winning the championships. I managed to catch up with our resident mechanical engineering expert, Fred Brain, and we will talk about a couple of issues. Good day, Fred. How are you going? Good. What have you been doing on this day? Have you been out and about enjoying this great, wonderful country that we have? <laughs> you mean this hideously wet day in Sydney? Um, <laughs> Been at the workshop trying to uh, fill around with a back axle that was leaking on the old Monaro. You've just clarified your expertise, <laughs> which I particularly appreciate. Now, the Elizabeth and Clive Toy Museum up in Lura is now selling all the material. It was called Urella, I think, was the, the name they gave to the big old White House. I went there one time many years ago. In terms of toys, and that, that, that can be a very important part of a childhood upbringing, you would have had your range of toy cars, I presume? Yes, yes, I've still got quite a few of them, actually, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> some, things, some things one just can't part with. You've now just reinforced your expertise in the in the manner, but you've dabbled in real cars quite a bit, and you came with us when we went and uh, road tested the Queen's Rolls Royce that she had here out in Australia. You brought along two of your own Rolls Royces, didn't you? What were they? A couple of dinghy toys that I won in colouring in competitions back around, I suspect, nineteen sixty five or thereabouts. Describe to me the competition. Well, I can't remember too much about it, except I'm pretty sure it was in the Sunday papers, and it would have been just colouring in something, whatever picture it might have been, and send it off, and then they had prizes awarded for it. I can't actually remember what I coloured in even. Did they allow you, however, to do what I think you did on many of your school books and, and draw it with wider wheels and uh, air scoops and other things? Did you get to modify it? No, no, it would have been just purely, um, there would have been a, a line drawing picture in the paper that you had to colour in. It wouldn't have been one where you modified. I think that would have been instant losing in the competition if that were to happen. The 60s weren't really a time of peak excellence for Rolls Royces, yet to some degree they were in Australia still, and perhaps even more than now, the epitome of excellence. Is that how you felt at the time? Yeah, I suppose, well, there was something you'd never see. I mean, we're coming from the country, uh, anything that wasn't a Holden Falcon or an old English car was uh, kind of a bit exotic, like a, in, in the town Wagga Wagga, if you saw a Chevy Impala or a Mercedes or a uh, Pontiac Parisian, 
they were the exotic cars that you'd uh, see in town, and they were quite rare. So I doubt whether there would have been any Rolls-Royces down there at that time. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been luxury, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That would have been the the Queen's carriage. (laughs) The models, they had a number of little special features to them. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, dinky toys from... uh, from the early 60s, they, they started to get fairly sophisticated because you, uh, you had opening doors, bonnets, boot lids, some suspension under them, all the wheels turned, uh, they had figurines in them, plastic windows. So they were quite a sophisticated little model for, the, uh, for that era in actual fact. As a man of class and taste, is that the car you actually wanted to win? Unfortunately, no. I can't remember which other ones are up for grabs, but Mustangs were definitely up for grabs as a prize, but I never actually won one of those. That's that's what I was really aiming for. <laughs> <laughs> but instead I won two Rolls Royces. Beggars can't be choosers, I guess. Sorry, you won two Rolls Royces. Is there a suggestion there that perhaps there weren't as many entries as they might have expected? Well, that's an interesting point, actually, yeah. Although the Mustangs must have been... They must have been a prize in the same competition. I can't remember whether the, uh, whether the Rolls-Royce was second or third or something and the Mustang was the first prize. So maybe, maybe I didn't actually win them. Maybe I kind of got consolation prizes. I don't think we'd better tell the Rolls-Royce Club that. Possibly not, no. <laughs> did you ever go to the museum in Lura? Pamela seems to think we did, but I, I don't actually remember it at all. I never remember the signs for it and thinking, oh, I must go there one day. Hmm. So I don't actually have any recollection of it, of being in there and seeing the exhibits at all, I must say. So um, I can't tell anything there, but um, I did actually have a browse through the catalogue that um, is on the website now for the first sale. I don't actually remember seeing all those things that were in it. The items and the toys may trigger memories, but a colleague who is an expert historian on the railways and who has a great passion for doing things properly wasn't over-impressed with the collection because there were no notes or other information about what they were, what the life and times of them were. Looking at the catalogue, were you enthralled? In terms of what was in the catalogue, there were a lot of lot of dolls, uh, which I know nothing about and don't have any real interest in. There were some small, minic tin toys from England, which I recognise from along the way. I've seen those come up at auctions and uh, had some of them along the way. But there are other ones which were larger ones, like boats and aeroplanes, which were probably quite rare ones, because I think... There are a number of them from German manufacturers. There didn't appear to be any die-cast toys in it, the small toys like cars and trucks that were die-cast, such as dinkies or corgis. They had metal plate sort of stuff, didn't they? There was a a rocket. Yeah, what they called tin plate, which were the tin tin ones, yes. Yep. Yeah, which some of those are quite rare because they're, they're the ones that really didn't survive that well because they were quite fragile. I'd like to thank you that you're not interested in the dolls, which, again, you have clarified your (laughs) positioning and expertise in this particular (laughs) broadcast. Thank you. But nonetheless, the museum, for want of a better word, did reflect 
the life and times in one regard because Clive Evatt was, of course, a great legal mind and there has been a legal stoush about this particular location and its collection. He had some children from a variety of families and it's all been rather meet you in court sort of thing as to what to do with it. So perhaps perhaps that is the life and times of these particular devices. Whenever there becomes money involved, yeah, that's the sort of thing that emerges and some of the toys there are probably quite valuable ones. I, I can't remember the exact prices, but I think there were some that were in the thousands of dollars so when you add it all up there were quite a few dollars worth of uh, toys up for grabs he also had some outdoor displays like train signs and yes that's right the boards that they used to put up to say where where the train was stopping at pieces of history that aren't just that aren't toys yeah quite right let's uh, pause for a moment and then we'll come back and we'll talk about a road test of a Mazda SUV. And we're back again. Fred, Brain, you and I had a go of the Mazda CX-8. There's a range of SUVs in the Mazda line. Where does the CX-8 fit in? Well, it fits in between the CX-7 and the CX-9, from what I can see. Thank you, Fred. That's perceptive. <laughs> the Mazda range of SUVs, it's, it's kind of logical, but it's becoming less logical, from what I can see, because they've got their CX-3, CX-5. They've had a CX-7, which has been discontinued, CX-9, and now the CX-8. But there's also a CX-30, and I saw a mention of there being a CX-60. <laughs> Where the hell do all those fit in? Well, having weathered our way through the nomenclature of these cars, it's not quite as bad as Mercedes-Benz, but it still can be a little bit overpowering. Getting inside the car, what was your initial response to the interior? It's quite a nice feeling interior, a bit of, a bit of an oldie-worldie look about it and a feel. Well, it's quite a pleasant car to get into in actual fact. It had a deep, well not real deep chocolate brown, but a, a, a sort of rich leather interior, not black. It reminded me to some degree of getting into an old Rover or something. And I don't mean that derogatorily. It, it had that, your words, oldie worldy feel. And a, quite a nice, pleasant, pleasant feel to sitting in the seats and they look, look very nice. Nice stitching and quite nicely finished. It certainly didn't look as overpoweringly technical as, say, some of the new Kias might. It had a screen, of course, but the screen wasn't a touch screen. How did you manoeuvre your cursor around the screen, the interior, infer- the middle infotainment screen? That was done by a, uh, by a dial down on the console from your dealing with it how did that seem relative to say using a touch screen i think it took a little bit of getting used to you had to understand whether you were moving it by dialing it or moving the cursor by actually toggling it left right up or down and so it depended on what you're looking at i i was in apple carplay and uh, it took me a little while to get used to it i prefer it greatly The idea of a touchscreen 
where as you're rolling along, you have to move over and try and make sure you hit the button at exactly the right spot. Well, not the button, the screen with a button image on it. Uh, to my mind, to my old podgy fingers, I think is not the, the best way to go about doing it. I like the fact that once you get used to it, you can dial over and it moves exactly between each of your button options. Right. If I want to go f- playing a podcast from stop or pause or start over to go 30 seconds forwards, it's one click. It's not one stab in the dark, as it were. Mm. To my mind, I prefer that. Now, a number of cars have had both. Uh, the Mazda chooses not to have the touch screen. Perhaps there's a saving in that. In all things being equal, I'm happy to come accustomed to that for its long-term value. Yeah, so do you reckon it's less distracting if you've got to do something when you're driving? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you drop your hand to the dial, which you don't have to look at. Yep, yes. And so you just quickly have to look at the screen and say, OK, I'm going to move three to the right or left, and I, and I can even then look at the road again and go click, 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 and, and check it up and do it. To me, I was much less distracted by doing it because it's automatic. It's a little like the feel of confidence and knowing that you get as to where the blinkers are or how to change the speed of the windscreen wiper. And now we've talked in the past how Tesla has a horrible system where you go to a touchscreen to change the speed of the windscreen wiper and it's a two-step process. Press one, check what it's like, press the other. As much as possible, I like the idea where I can drop my hand to a control In the case, though, I may have to give it a quick look, and then when I'm choosing, I'm not making this stabbing with my finger, which might be bouncing around because of the movement of the car. Yeah, yeah, and you're not having to look for as long. Take your eyes off the road and look at the touchscreen for as long to actually get what you want, basically. It is a fundamental problem with touchscreens in cars. You add to that the, the, the issue that the majority of us, not all, but the majority are right-handed, but we're right-hand drive, so I'm using my left hand, which is perhaps not quite as dexterous as my right hand. For others, that's obviously left-handed people, that may be a bit of an advantage. I think I can do it more precisely and more in steps rather than attempting to push a button which I might hit or I may not quite hit properly. Of course, once you click on it, you then put enter. But again, the enter on the dial in the Mazda is is a button that I can do without looking at. Yes, yep. Yeah, so it's actually on the, the button. You press, press the top of the button hmm. to enter what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that operating the dial, yeah, as you said, you can do it without actually looking at it simple as that a fairly traditional looking suv Mm. with the mazda very hard to pick the difference between a cx5 and a cx8 yet it is you were thinking that perhaps the eight is a bit big and of course there's the nine there as well which i'm not quite sure why you have two that are in the same category and that is a large suv But if you were looking at it, and we'll test that in the the weeks ahead, uh, you would be looking, say, at a CX-5? Only as a a second runabout car after having a 
Pajero as uh, as our normal usage vehicle. A tow car and the, the Pajero, yeah. And a good car for in the country, but it, it struck me that a CX-5, especially the 2.5-litre versions, are probably quite a good all-round vehicle for city and country use. Mm. I'd opt there for a petrol version because running a diesel around the city on short runs is not that good for a diesel. So having a smaller petrol engine vehicle for uh, mainly city use but also one that could actually be used in the country it struck me that a cx-5 for two people for example if you had a bigger family or you needed more space then maybe you opt for the bigger ones but a cx-5 seemed to be a good compromise shape so it'd be interesting to drive the uh, new one to see what it see what it's like all right well let's report about that next week fred lovely to take your time and keep you from your delights of repairing the back axle of the monaro <laughs> this is the monaro you have for racing of course yeah it's a race car yep i see there's an auction going on for more traditional road cars including a monaro but you talked earlier about some of the more prestige cars we see around there was there was one in there at a big american firebird now a monaro an early model monaro was so far had bids of $150,000. What did this super wide wheels and aggressive looking American Firebird, what was the typical bid for those? Well, last time I looked, it uh, was only up to 16000 but um, they usually go for thirty or 40000 Firebirds. They're kind of a similar size car to the Monaro. They were the ones, uh, the model that... Um, the now-deceased Australian pop singer made famous on a record cover, Johnny O'Keefe. I do know that he had that crash north of Kempsey, I think, in the Plymouth. Right. He and a mate and a mate's wife, they were all three were seriously injured, but I think they used a firebird as part of a, a movie clip, I think, about Shout. Uh, I will consult an expert cross-referencing of modern culture. Uh, can I point out that I, I'm also aware that they used an F.B. Holden as uh, to tour around in, which was perhaps less salubrious, although the way things are going, you'd probably be paying for a good F.B. Holden around the 19, early, very early 1960s. Now, it would probably cost around $16,000 anyway. Uh, maybe more these days, um, because they've... they've... Even the early early Holdens have uh, shot up in value, uh, so you might pay as much for the FB, an immaculate FB, as you would for a Pontiac Firebird now, interestingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's slightly difference in performance. Uh, yes, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, mate, well, we've crossed cultural barriers, and I appreciate that greatly. Uh, we'll, we'll catch you up uh, soon. Thanks for your time. Okay, no worries. Talk to you soon. Bye. And that's our resident mechanical engineering expert, Fred Brain. He and I rallied together many years ago, and he has tried to keep me in line as far as technical matters are concerned. When we cross over into popular culture, both of us tend to be out of our depth. This is Overdrive across Australia. This week, one of the cars I'm driving is the Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace. 
This seven-seat version of the popular Tiguan certainly has grown the model since its first release in 2008. I was at that launch and it's certainly come a long way since then. The Allspace was released to cater for the growing family SUV demand and features a longer wheelbase and two small third-row seats. These seats are for occasional use by kids or early teens only. There are six variants in the range with five different engines, both petrol and diesel, and two drivetrains. The entry-level 110 TSI front-wheel drive model comes with a six-speed DSG. The rest come with four-motion all-wheel drive capability and seven-speed wet DSG. I drove the top-spec model, the 162 TSI R-Line model. It's well-equipped and comes with a host of R-styling additions as well as progressive steering. Pricing for the Tiguan Allspace starts at $44,590 for the front-wheel drive-only version through to 61690 for the R diesel version, all plus the usual costs. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Florence Fuller, Rob Fraser, Bianca Fraser and Paul Just for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>